Hey there, I'm Joey Dean, lead pastor of South Lakes Church in Oklahoma City. At South Lakes Church, we exist to be radically devoted to God, relentlessly committed to true community, and remarkably passionate for the lost. We hope your faith is strengthened and you grow closer to Jesus as you listen this morning. Now let's jump into this week's message. Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus, and I ask that you would speak into our hearts this morning, that you would challenge us with your word, and that we would walk away from this place with an understanding of just how important identity is and why we need to be careful where we find that identity in. And so, Father, I pray that you would work mightily both in this room and for all those that are watching online this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. All right. Let's talk about Jacob. Like the code even came off already. It didn't even make it. So, all right. So, um, introduction to Jacob. Let's kind of recap where we are in Genesis. So in Genesis, last week we talked about Abram or Abraham and Abraham was the one that entered into the covenant with, um, with God and there was the split carcasses and there was the smoking fire pot that went between. We talked about how God takes on both uh, responsibilities of the covenant and how significant that is. Well, remember, he was married to a young lady by the name, well, she wasn't young at this point. She was a young lady by the name of Sarai. And God gives Abram and Sarai new names, says Abraham and Sarah, and they end up having a baby boy. And his name is Isaac. And if you're reading through the scripture, Isaac was the one that Abram took, Abraham took on top of the mountain. And he was about to sacrifice him uh, because God told him to, and the angel stops him. And if you haven't read it, jump on in, all right? Well, Isaac, when he gets older, he marries a young woman by the name of Rebecca. And at the ripe old age of 59, 60, Rebecca and Isaac get pregnant. And in Genesis chapter 25, we are taken into the delivery room, if you will, for Rebecca. But the problem is that when Rebecca starts giving birth, there's a surprise. So here we go. Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 24. It says, when Rebekah's days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now, let me just share with this real quick. Women, if, if you don't get this, guys, this is the scariest thing for a guy, right? Because after, even though you go through all of these pictures of seeing the baby inside of mommy's tummy. I've asked all the doctor for all four of our births. I said, is there anything, is there anyone else in there? Because the last thing I want is to think that I'm getting one and I get a twofer, right? I mean, at least if I have time to prepare myself, but it's always a fear of mine. So I can identify with Isaac here when, when, uh, when they say, hey, there's the twins. And so the first came out red and all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Now listen, I'm not saying this kid probably got made fun of his entire life, but that's sad, all right? Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So here's the thing that we need to understand that we really don't get in our culture is that names mean everything in this culture. In fact, your name defines who you are as an individual. 
And so when Rebekah gives birth, the first child to come is Esau. And the first thing they notice about Esau is that he's a very hairy baby and he's red. And so they name him Esau. Does anyone want to guess what the name Esau means? Esau means red. Yeah, you think hairy, it's red because he was red. Well, as Esau is coming out, they notice that something is holding on to big brother's heel. And here comes Jacob. And so what do they do? They notice, okay, well, we named Esau red because, man, that that dude's red, right? And this second child is holding on to the heel of younger brother. And so they named him Jacob. And Jacob means heel grabber. But what's interesting is that the word Jacob also was a euthanism or a literary term that carried the connotation of someone who was both deceptive and manipulative. He was a cheat. Now, there's no way that they could have known that their child was a deceptive child, right? They just went off of, okay, he's grabbing the heel, and so we're going to name him heel grabber. But what's interesting is that Jacob lives up to the second part of his name for his entire life. In fact, we don't get that far into the story until we hear about Jacob's first deception. Look at verse 29. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, because see, Jacob was a mama's boy. He stayed at home and, and, and Rebecca loved him the most. And Esau was a man's man. And he went out and he went hunting. And so dad loved him the most. So once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. So not only was Esau a man's man, he was also a drama queen, all right? So he comes in, he's like, I'm dying here. Uh, Women have a word for this when men get sick. It's called a man cold. You know, when we make a big deal out of it, that's what's happening here. And so Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the first deception that we see of Jacob this morning is when Esau comes in, exhausted and tired and, and hungry, and he's like, I'm just going to die. And Jacob sees his brother in a vulnerable state and thinks to himself, how can I gain something from this situation? So he goes, hey, I got an idea. I've got a yummy bowl of soup here, bud. Instead of just giving it to you, like instead of just saying, hey, can you take it? I love you. Here you go. He says, I'll give you this bowl of soup if you sell me your birthright. Now understand, Isaac, the dad, he was not like, in charge of like a little, a, a, a little money. Like it wasn't like he had like a, a 2,000 square foot house and he had a minivan and, 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 and a car and he had a, a decent 401k and, and, and he made a good living for himself and then the kids were gonna inherit money through, through the will and trust, right? It wasn't that at all. Isaac was over basically a small country. The Lord had blessed Abram and Isaac and they were over, I mean, it was, it was its own little country at that time. And so Esau and Jacob were due to inherit quite a lot of wealth, but because Esau was the oldest, he was going to inherit twice as much as his brother. And so Jacob thought, I can't have it that way. 
So he takes advantage, and he takes his brother's birthright. Jacob's getting it all. I want all of my dad's wealth. And you go, okay, I don't get it. I thought we were going to talk about impression management. Well, we are going to talk about impression management. So let's take a time out from Jacob, and let's talk about how this plays out today in 2022. I know that we might not name our kids like what we would like for them to become someday. Like if you have a boy and you're like, I hope my boy becomes the greatest quarterback in the history of of the football league and supplants Tom Brady someday, all right? I hope that that happens. So you don't name your boy Super Bowl, right? We just don't do that. Or if you have a daughter and you're like, I I want my daughter to be the smartest girl ever and I want her to come up with with a cure for cancer, you don't name your daughter like mad scientist. Like you don't do that. Like we don't, we don't try to come up with names for what our kids want to become. However, we do live in a world though that is searching for identity. We live in a culture where you and I, we are defined by two things. What we do as individuals and what other people say about us. That is how we find our definition of who we are. And so what do we do? We put all of our work and our talents and our gifts on display in front of other people so that people will like us and people will think a certain way about us and offer us words of affirmation. Because there's a reality that all all of us suffer from this, all right? It doesn't, you have to be a Christian or a non-Christian. We all suffer from this, is that people, we desire for others to speak value statements over our lives. Like, I'm not a words of affirmation guy. I don't need someone to pat me on the back and say, you're doing a great job for me to keep going on. That's not what fuels me. However, it does feel good when someone does put their hand out, shakes your hand and says, hey, I do think you're doing a great job. Maybe it doesn't fuel me, but I like to hear value statements spoken over my life. And the whole thing about impression management is this, is that we will do things in order to get more value statements spoken over our lives. We will do whatever it takes to be able to be spoken words of affirmation. So there's a pastor out of Plano, Texas, by the name of Jonathan Dotson. I was listening to a sermon of his recently, and he had a quote about reputation that I thought really fits here. So it's up on the screen. It says, reputation means everything to us. A person of good repute is someone who has good character, and character is what comes out of people in a pinch. So when you squeeze the tube, whatever is inside comes out, good character or bad. And when the milk is spilt, character is seen, patient or impatient. So reputation is a reflection of innate character. It isn't something we finesse or manage. It becomes visible over time. You see, character comes before reputation. So here's what Mr. Dotson is saying. What he is saying is that how people think about you is going to come about because of who you really are inside. So when, when it does hit the fan, when things aren't going well and, and, and you just can't handle whatever is going on, how you respond in that moment is who you really are. That's who you are in that moment. Because in a pinch, that's how we respond. That's who's inside. And so I, um, what happens a lot of times is that we don't like that. We don't want to have character development in order to get to where we have the reputation that we want. So we'll flip them and we'll say, I want to focus on reputation first and then I'll work on character development. 
So instead, what we try to do is we try to manage what people think about us without ever cultivating the character that actually should formulate the reputation that we so desire. So here's an example. My third church that I served in, I was just a young kid in my 20s. I was mid-20s at this point, but I was still just a kid. And this is the first church that introduced me to an elder-led model of church. And I remember that I was the uh, youngest guy on staff. Uh, the other staff had at least uh, 10 to 20 years on me, all right? And, um, and then I was in a room full of deacons, and the deacons had probably in the neighborhood of 20 to 40 years on me, okay? But what I wanted to do is that I wanted to give a good impression that I was more mature than, than I was. And so, because I knew that at the end of the journey, we were going to become an elder-led church, and they were going to choose elders, And so I worked really hard to cultivate how I wanted that room of people to see me as a young kid in ministry. The problem is that they had seen me in a pinch and they knew what my true character was. And when it came time to to select who the first elders of the church was going to be, I did not get picked and I was not happy because I had done everything that I needed to be done, at least in my eyes. And the reality is this, I didn't have the character that the Bible called that an elder should have. I was too busy trying to get the reputation of being one without actually having the Lord work on what needed to happen in my life. See, more than not, you and I, we value the opinions of others way more than we value what God actually thinks about us. And so impression management, that's what this is. And impression management is super acceptable in the business world, right? So you're trying to get a job. You know you're going to get a big old fat stack of resumes for the the boss you're trying to hire. So you may tell a little white lie. Because you need to do what it takes on your resume to stand out so you can at least get an interview so you can impress the boss. Or you mess up at work. It's not a big mess up. It's a little mess up. But you know that if you get words out, like you may come across as incompetent. And so you just kind of keep it quiet because you don't want to look bad. Why? Because you're trying to get ahead of the competition. And you don't want to have anything to set you aside as being incompetent. You know, the Bible actually talks a lot about impression management. We just don't call it impression management. The Bible calls it double-mindedness. See, yeah, the Bible calls impression management double-mindedness. Now, the problem with this is that if I say we're all experts in impression management, we're like, ooh, that sounds good. But if I go, hey, we're all experts in being double-minded, now all of a sudden it hurts. But it's the same thing. See, double-minded people place reputation ahead of character development. And we become experts in impression management. And the problem is that when we're double-minded in who we are, instead of having one version of ourselves for the world to see, we actually fluctuate between many versions dependent upon who we're around. So I used to be an avid golfer. I used to love to golf. I'd go out with my pastors that I served with once, maybe twice a week. And my favorite thing about golfing is when we would get paired up with strangers. And it would always start off great. We'd be on the front nine. We'd have talking and they, they would be loose. And, you know, maybe they're, they're drinking beer. I don't have a problem with that, by the way. Just, I just okay. But, and, and maybe they're using more colorful language than I normally use. And, and, and we're just having a good time, right? I'm not offended by the things that are going on. I don't know these guys. I don't know if they're believers or not. I don't know that. It's just the front nine of golf. But around the, the turn, when you go from the ninth to the tenth hole, it always come around where they would ask, hey, what do you guys do? And we would say, oh, we're pastors. 
and there would be like a switch that would go off. And all of a sudden, the golfers that we were with on the front nine were no longer the golfers that we were with on the back nine. You would have thought that we were with Peter and Paul. You would have thought that Jesus Christ himself came down and was playing golf with us. It was incredible, the change. See, that's what double-mindedness does. Double-mindedness changes who we are dependent upon who we're around. And let's just be honest, we all get sucked into it. In high school, I used to call it, I was a great butterfly. I could float from group to group and I could fit in. You know what that was code for? I was just really good at not knowing who I was. That's all that was. I just had a cute little way of saying it. So you go to work and we want approval from others and we want to control the impression that they have of us. So we go to work and we work as hard as we can. We put in long hours. We sacrifice family time. We compromise where needed on little things, not big things, not fireable offenses. In orders that we hope that our boss or our coworkers, they will view us as successful, as ambitious, and if we're lucky enough, promotion worthy. Or home. We want people to look at our Facebook posts. Or we want people to look at, at how we are in public. Or we want people to come over to our house and see everything in its perfect spot. And we want for, so that people will say, wow, you must be the best parents. Or you must be the best husband or the best wife. Or wow, your kids are incredible. I cannot believe how awesome they are. And what you're doing is you're trying to get validation as a parent or as a spouse. And you do that by trying to control what people see. Here's one that thousands and thousands of people in Oklahoma play every weekend. It's called church. You come to church and you volunteer wherever you can. Why? In hopes that someone, and if you're lucky, the, it will be the pastor, will see you using your gifts and they will validate you and say, wow, you have such a servant's heart. Or wow, you are so godly. And all the time, we forgot that it is possible to do all the religious things in the world that we do, not because we care about who we are in Christ, but because we care about how we're viewed in the church. The problem is that double-mindedness leads, leads to false living every time. And when we lead false living lives, then this is what happens. See, if our value is found solely in what we do and what others think about us, then your and my value is only as good as the current opinion. You've thought about that? If you're living for people to say good things about you, then your current value is only as good as the next positive or negative thing that someone says. And so you're doing what you can in the midst of double-mindedness to get that. It's impression management. And Jacob was good. Let's keep going on. Genesis chapter 27. So Isaac is getting older, he's lost his eyesight, and he thinks he's about to die. Now, spoiler alert, he actually doesn't die. He lives another 20 years, but we see where Esau gets his, his drama queenness, okay? So, but Isaac thinks that he's about to die, and so he calls Esau, his oldest, and he goes, hey, I want to pray a prayer blessing over you. Before I do, I want you to go out, I want you to kill some game, I want you to prepare it, bring it in, we'll share a meal together, and then I'll pray blessings over you. The problem is that when Esau leaves, Jacob, the deceiver, and his mom, the deceiveress, <laughs> get word of this. And so they're like, all right. So they kill a goat 
Mom fixes the goat. They put Jacob. Remember, he's just a homebody. He's not very hairy, all right, especially as hairy as a guy who comes out hairy, right, of the womb. And so they put the goat skins on Jacob's arm so that when dad feels it, it's that hairy. I mean, how hairy can this guy be? This is crazy, right? And so, and then Jacob goes in to his dad who is blind, and this is what happens. Look in Genesis chapter 27, verse 18. It says, so Jacob went into his father Isaac and said, my father. And Isaac said, here I am, but who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn, and I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found, so, found it so quickly, my son? And this is what Jacob said, because the Lord your God granted me success. So here's what happens. Jacob already had the birthright, but the birthright is nothing compared to the prayer of blessing. Remember I said that Isaac was over basically a small nation. Well, whoever he would pray a prayer of blessing over, that was what was going to determine who was going to receive control over all of the family, over all the possessions. The blessing was going to determine who's going to take over leadership of everything, including the leadership of all the siblings. And so Jacob comes in and steals his father's prayer. He takes advantage of his father's fragile state and says, how can I gain something from this? I'm already going to be rich beyond my imagination because I've already got all of, the, all of the, the inheritance. So what can I do here? Oh, I want to be in charge. So he tricks his father to the point where Isaac is like, wait a second, I literally just sent you out. How have you killed the game, cleaned the game, cooked the game, get on already, and you're here? And this is what he says. He says, oh, don't worry, father. Your God has granted me success. That's how deceptive Jacob was. He was willing to use the name of God Almighty to promise and to vow, no, I am really who you think that I am. I am Esau. Jacob used every tool at his disposal to pull off the deception. Now, can I just say this, folks? If you are around someone that will use any tool at their, at their disposal to deceive you, you should run. You should run. Because that is someone that will stop at nothing to manipulate to get what they want. You should run. So here's what happens. Esau comes in, and him and his dad figure out, whoa, we've been tricked, and they start bawling. They're broken, and this is what happens. Look in verse 35. It says, Isaac says to Esau, your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Is he not rightly named a deceiver? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And Esau's mad. So Esau goes, I'm just going to kill him. How do I get my birthright back? And how do I get my blessing back? I'll just kill him. And Jacob tucks tail and he runs away. Now, if you're reading the story for the first time, and you, you, you've learned that God is a just God, 
and that God is going to take care of you know, his people and he's going to, to rain down justice, then you're thinking to yourself, okay, there's got to be a point where God's going to intervene, right? And he's going to set straight this trickster of Jacob of how he's manipulated his family. And so when Jacob runs away, he falls asleep in the middle of the wilderness and he has a dream. And in this dream, there's a ladder and this ladder has angels going up and down, up and down. And what it is, is it's a picture of the gateway between earth and heaven. And here's what happens. I want you to look in chapter 28, verse 13, okay? It says, and behold, the Lord stood above it, stood above the ladder and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. See, God does not speak words of condemnation or judgment over over Jacob here. No, instead, God does the exact opposite and speaks words of unconditional promises over Jacob. He says things like, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm never going to leave you. And I'm like, how is this possible? Because is God not seeing the same scumbag that I'm seeing? And the reality is this, is that God has the ability to look past Jacob's sin and his deceptive living and still proclaim that you are usable for the kingdom of God. There's no better words that I can share this morning to say, I don't care what your past is, you have never gone outside the reach of God to be able to be used for the kingdom of God. And that's what's happening here is that Jacob is not, or God is not condoning Jacob's sin. He's just saying, Jacob, I'm going to use you in spite of you being Jacob. And that's incredible. And so they go off. And chapter 28 through 32, I don't have time to get into it, but basically it covers 20 years of Jacob's life. And there's two things you need to know if you're taking notes. Jacob has two problems in his life at this point. He has girl problems and he has in-law problems. That's what you need to know. And the deceiver ends up being deceived because he falls in love with this girl. But she's the younger sister. And so the dad deceives the deceiver on his wedding night and ends up tricking him into marrying the older sister. And it leads to a whole host of problems. And after many, many years of working off the debt to be able to marry both girls, Jacob decides it's time to go home. And as he heads home, he hears news that Esau, his hairy red brother, is waiting with 400 men for him to come home. And so Jacob panics, and Jacob does what Jacob does well. He looks at the situation and says, how can I get out of this? And so he sends bribes. And he says, I'm going to win over my brother's affections by buying it. And so what Jacob does is he prepares for battle by heading off into wilderness by himself. And this is what happens. Look in verse, uh, chapter 32. We're going to read in verse 24 this morning. It says, Jacob was left alone. Why? Because he sent everything, all his kids, all his family, everything. He sent them ahead. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, well, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God 
and with men and have prevailed. See, what happens is that God gives Jacob a new identity. Now, at first, you're like, this is really weird because Jacob's out by himself. It's the middle of the night. He just sees this random dude, and he's like, I think I could take him. I, I got this. But really, is that not a picture of Jacob's entire life up to this point? He sees an obstacle, and he says, I got this. I can do this. I can beat that guy. So he goes over, and he picks a fight, and he begins to wrestle. And as the wrestling, the night keeps going on, the man he's wrestling with touches his hip, and it pops out of place. And Jacob doesn't give up. So I want you to picture this. And allow me a little bit of, of liberty to be able to read between the lines here of how I, I see this going down. Because I just know I, I wrestle a lot with my girls, all right? Um, I don't have boys, so I had to teach them how to wrestle, all right? And so we wrestle a lot in my house. So we play a game where it's, uh, it's, hey, keep the girls off the carpet. So I have wood floors in my living room, and then we have an area rug. And I lay in the middle of the carpet, and my girls try to get on the carpet, and I just try to keep keep them away. If they get on the carpet, then what I do is I hold them down and then they try to squirm away to get back off the carpet, right? It's it's kind of like I, I'm the dragon. That's how we do it, right? So it, it's a weird thing we do in our house, all right? Don't judge me. I'm not a bad dad. Um, but um, so we do this. And so as there's, and they're squirmy, right? They're like, they're, they're just so squirmy. And so as they squirm out, as I reach out to grab them, the last thing that I always grab and I can grab a good hold of is the ankle. I can always grab hold of the ankle because, man, that's just a really good thing to hold on. And I can get both of them. And I can hold them both. And they, they squirm. And no, I, eventually, I just have to let go because there's just nothing that I'm going to do to let go of them. This is how I see it when Jacob wrestles God. Is that his hip's out of socket now. So he's not standing up wrestling. He's not sitting down wrestling. He's got to be laying down wrestling. And as... as This man of God is trying to get away. I see Jacob going out and grabbing that foot because it's the last thing he can grab before he gets away. If you've ever watched a wrestling match, you know, that's how it is. Just don't let go of the leg until the bell sounds. And he holds that foot. And the reason I think this is how it went down is because remember what Jacob's name really means? Heel grabber. And I think that's what we see here. Is that Jacob is begging God in this moment, please don't go. And I think the reason is because Jacob's finally realized my life is a mess. I've been a deceiver my entire life. My brother is literally coming out to kill me. Please don't go. And so God just asks a simple question. Hey, what's your name? You've been fighting me all night. What's your name? Now, it's not because God didn't know. Because he needed Jacob to confess something. See, God's question elicits this confession from Jacob because Jacob is forced to confess, you know what my name is? I'm a deceiver. I'm a deceiver. I'm Jacob. And I've lived a life of wrongs and I deceive people. And yet he doesn't even know that this encounter with God is about to leave him completely changed. So in verse 28, he says, hey, don't worry. You know what? Your name's no longer going to be called. You're, You're not deceiver anymore. You know what you are? You're now Israel. And Israel doesn't mean deception. You know what Israel means? God will rule. God will rule. In fact, I love it in the original Hebrew when you look at this statement. It says, then he said, your name shall no longer be. How that, I I always say, I hate it when I say better translation, but what I consider a better translation would be this, is that what 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 the man of God is saying here is it will no longer be said of you. 
it will no longer be said of you that you are a deceiver. Instead, it will be said that you are a man who God rules. Now, does that mean that Jacob wouldn't go back to his old tendencies and deceive? No, no. Does it mean that others would have a hard time seeing him as anything other than a deceiver? Absolutely. I don't know if you've ever been around someone before that says that the Lord has touched them and has changed them, but yet maybe you've lived a sordid past and you've said those things in, in the past, or maybe, you, I don't know, you just, and, and, and your loved ones or your family and friends, they just don't believe you. It takes time, right? Like it takes time to prove that God has changed you. But the point is not that Jacob wouldn't slip up. The point is not that people still wouldn't see him as a deceiver. The point is that God was saying, listen, all that matters from this point forward is what I say about you. Is what I say about you. And you are Israel. Now the good news is this. Is that God actually offers us in 2022 a better identity as well. Because there's got to be a better way than to go around trying to impress others in order to gain their approval and acceptance. That is just exhausting. And I got good news. Jesus is the one who gives us a better name. I don't know a better way to put it than Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning that if you have come to a place where you've, you've accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, you've been washed clean of your sin, then I got good news for you. You will not be condemned for who you are. You will be known for who you are in Christ. This is who you are. And the great thing about this sentence, about this statement, is that it points us away from ourselves because we're screw-ups. And instead, it points us to all that Jesus has done. Jesus has earned a new identity for us. And he gives it to us. Man, I love the Olympics, guys. I'm not a very patriotic person. Now, don't get me wrong. I love being an American. I love, I, I love patriotic values. I just, I, I don't have the Bill of Rights memorized. I don't have a flag tattoo on my body. You know, I, I don't have those things, right? But I love being American, especially during the Olympics. I love the Olympics. And my patriotism goes up like a million percent like most people in the United States. I love watching the U.S. compete against other countries. And I love learning about sports that I have no clue what's going on because I only get to see it four times a year or four, uh, once every four years. Like I remember about 15 years ago when the world was introduced, well, in my opinion, for the first time to the sport of curling. And I'm like, what is this? And why have I lived my entire life without knowing what this is, right? And the whole country was like, and then curling was like on primetime TV. And I'm like, why are we watching these guys? I don't know, but I can't stop, okay? I love it. But the thing I love most is watching the finals of an event. And when they put the winner, the U.S. athlete, up on the podium, and he's up on that first place podium, and they put that gold around the neck. And they play our country's song. And you know what? I always go to work the next day, and I say, did you see such and such? Did you see what happened? We won gold. I, I didn't win gold. I didn't do anything to deserve that gold medal, which is true, but you know, on the opposite side of things, I'm also right because we, the USA, just won the gold. See, the athletes are not just there for themselves competing, but they're there representing all of us as a country. 
And so what happens to those athletes who compete and win can rightfully be said for all of the country that they represent. We won. Now, could I have gone and won gold in curling? Oh, absolutely not. Could any of you have done it? Like, I'm not taking away from your athletic prowess. Probably no one's an Olympic gold medalist in this room. No offense. If you are, I'd love to see it. But here's the reality, is that this is exactly what Jesus does for us. See, there was this impossible standard that God set for man to live up to. You want to come live in my house? Here's the standard, and the standard's perfection. Meaning you can never have a bad thought. You can never have, not just say bad words. You can't even think bad words. You, you can never look at a man or a woman uh, with wrong intentions in your heart. You can never get mad at someone. You always have to honor your father and mother. I mean, the list could go on and on. And if you fell in just one of them, just one, you don't get access into God's house. That's the standard. In fact, here's the crazy thing. I have a better shot at winning Olympic gold in curling than I do living one perfect day. But yet Jesus does it. And he wins. And we know he wins because after he died on the cross, the validation of the gold medal was when he walked out of the grave. And he says, it's finished. It's done. I, I've, I've, victory is here. But the thing is this, Jesus just doesn't win for himself, but he wins for every person that he represents. And so when Jesus is on the the medal stand and he's on the gold medal and they're putting the medal around his neck, at the age of 14, when I gave my life to Jesus, Jesus reached down. I said, Jesus, I know I need you as Savior and Lord. I know that I don't deserve you. Would you forgive me my sins? Would you be king of my life? He reaches down. He picks me up. He puts me on the podium with me, and he puts his gold medal around my neck. But instead of it saying Olympic gold medalist, now I look at it, and it says Joey Dean Blameless. Joey Dean Innocent. Joey Dean Pure, Joey Dean adopted, Joey Dean child of God. I don't deserve any of those designations, but that's good because I'm underneath the umbrella. I'm underneath the rule of the one that did it. And he has put his medal around my neck and he's changed my identity forever. And when we understand who we are in Christ, this frees us up in every other area of our lives because we are no longer walking into places looking for an identity, but we are now living out our identity that God has already given us. So I don't need someone to say, I'm the best dad in the world because I'm a child of God. I don't need to be the best employee in the world because I am forgiven. Because when Jesus sees me, he goes, he was worthy to die for. I don't need validation because I've been validated by the king of kings. And because of that, it changes everything. Now, do I want to be the best dad in the world? Absolutely. Do I want to be the best employee in the world? Absolutely. Do I want to be excellent at all things that I do? I better because the Bible says that I should work as unto the Lord. But my identity is not found in what my wife says to me, in what my boss says to me, in what my pastor says to me. And this is the fight of the Christian life. 
I wish I was a good enough preacher that this would be like one of those light bulb moments where the battle over your identity crisis would just be finished and you'd be like, I'm done. But it's not. There's no preacher good enough for that. Because the reality is that we need to constantly hear this truth of who we are in Christ, that we constantly need to be reminded of this truth of who we are in Christ, that we constantly need to hold each other accountable to this truth of who we are in Christ. I don't know if you recognize this or realize this or not, but you and I, we constantly preach sermons to ourselves internally. We do. You and I are constantly speaking words and messages into our lives that shape how we, how we think and how we act. The question that we have to ask ourselves if you're a believer this morning or if you're watching online is are you preaching the message that God, what, are you preaching the same message that God says about you in heaven? Or are you preaching the message that the world is screaming from the top of the rooftop that other people's opinions matter? Because the reality is this, if I'm saying things to myself that are contrary to what God says about me, then write this down. He is always right, and I am always wrong. If he says that I am forgiven and that I am worthwhile, then I am. If he says that I'm not a screw-up, then I'm not. If he says that I can do it, then I can If he says, you are a good dad, you're not perfect, then I am. I am who God says that I am and not vice versa. And this this is why we have to understand that as a Christian, compliments do not feed us, criticism does not starve us, but we are sustained daily by the words of God. Which is why in 2022, our goal is to get our church back into being in the word of God. Because this is who you are. Who this says is who you are. And there is nothing that you can substitute. You can't listen to enough podcasts. You can't listen to enough sermons preached. You can't do enough good acts to replace starting here. This is where it starts. This is where it begins. Because this is who you find out. Who you are. And what God says about you will always be an unchanging fact. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do I believe it? Or have I even accepted it? I got four questions for you this morning. Now, you guys are fortunate because you don't have another service coming, so we're actually going to have a response time in the sense of having worship and stuff. And I, I, I pray that there is some response this morning because I think the heaviness of this message is one that every single person in this room can identify with the things that I'm saying. Every single one of us, we have identity problems. And we're trying to manage how people view us. And we're trying to manage how we're perceived. Why? Because we want words of affirmation spoken over our lives. We all have this problem. No one in this room is above that. No one. It's a daily battle that we fight. So do you, it starts with, do you believe who you are? So here's four questions that I think are so pivotal for us to explore. Number one is this. What does your current behavior communicate about who you think you are? What does your current behavior communicate about who you think that you are? Secondly, whose approval are you really after? 
And if it's anyone other than God's, I got to tell you, it's an idol. It's an idol. Meaning your spouse, meaning your kids, meaning your work, meaning your church. It's an idol. Whose approval are you chasing after? Number three, what identity do you preach to yourself most often? What's that internal sermon that you're constantly saying to yourself? And if it's words like, I'm worthless, I can't do this, I'm a loser, I'm incompetent, those aren't true. Those aren't true. Because that's not who the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who saved you says that you are. And the last thing is this. In what ways am I struggling to believe the identity that I have been given in Jesus? Which area of your life are you struggling in? Is it your marriage? Is it your work? Is it your parenting? Is it just being a Christian? Like, where are you struggling to believe the identity that you've been given in Jesus? Because whatever falsities that you're telling yourself and the world is telling yourself, it's not true. It's not. And it never has been. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. You know what that tells me? That you were worthy for Jesus to come and die. I don't know why I'm like nothing. I'm like worse than nothing. But for some reason he said, I love you enough that we're going to pave a way. And that sets me on firm foundation on who my identity is. And every day I should wake up and I should speak words of life and say, I'm a child of God. I am forgiven. I am blameless. I am pure. I am adopted. I am striving to be like my Savior. Like All those things aren't true necessarily how you're leaving those out because we're screw-ups. I get that. But I'm glad that God doesn't look at my screw-ups. I'm glad that he looks at Jesus and the medal that he put around my neck. So where are you this morning? Are you struggling with knowing who you are? Maybe you're sitting here going, well, I'm not a child of God. Well, I got good news for you. Today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day where you say, I want Jesus to put me up on the podium and put a medal around my neck and pronounce me as forgiven. Today's the day. Today is also the day that Jesus can say, hey, listen, it's still true about you. Maybe it happened 20 years ago. It's still true. The medal's still around your neck. You're still blameless. You're still forgiven. You're still my child. I want to pray for you. Father, I come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. And Father, the weightiness of the message today does not go unnoticed. As what we have talked about this morning is something that every one of us struggles with. Whether we realize or not, we so want to be accepted by others. We so want to be affirmed by others. We so want to be loved by others. And we will do what it takes in order to get the affirmation that we so desperately crave. And in the process, we forget that we've already been affirmed. Words of life have already been spoken over us. 
and that we don't have to work to try to get people's affections or their affirmation. Because all that matters is what you think about us. All that mattered in that moment when Jacob was begging for a blessing, begging for God not to leave him, was for God to remind him, listen, this is what I think about you. So Father, I pray for my church this morning, those that are both in this building and those that are watching online. And I start with those that maybe their identity is not found in Jesus because they've never come to a place where they've truly believed that they needed to be saved. So today I pray that you would literally shatter the hearts of hard-heartedness this morning. And I pray that this morning that you would show them that you are standing there with an outreached hand ready to put them up on that podium, to put that medal around their neck and to pronounce them as forgiven. They just have to be ready to reach out and say, forgive me, be king of my life. Father, I pray for those that maybe have experienced the forgiveness of of you. The medal's been around their neck maybe for a while now. You've pronounced who they are many years ago and they've just forgotten because maybe they've been speaking words of condemnation over their own lives. Maybe they've been working a little too hard to be able to get approval from those whose approval really doesn't matter. Father, I pray that you would show them that the words that they have spoken over their lives are false. And that you would have reminded them today and from this day forward about who they truly are in you. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is who we are. This can be who we are. Father, would your spirit breathe life into dead men this morning and to, and to alive men as well. I ask that you would shake the foundations of our heart this morning and that we would repent and we would turn and that you would be glorified. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about South Lakes Church, go to slchurch.life. Thank you.